I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo's back. Yeah. Along with Sam Monson. Back from did, vacation. Did you say welcome in with that type of uh, energy? Without I me? I believe I said welcome in. I can't vouch for the energy that was involved in it. Yeah. Anyway, it's good to be back. Appreciate you guys. Uh, we had Austin Gale. We had Dr. Eager in. Mm-hmm. How'd that go? We're good. Other than the fact that iTunes decided to screw us and stop posting the podcast. But once we got it up. So we all, have that result. I believe so, yeah. I believe it is now populating in iTunes. Okay, so that's good. Anyway, if you if you do uh, listen on iTunes, <coughs> you apologies. May have, you, yeah, we apologize. You got Not the show that was a our fault, late. but yeah, we apologize on behalf of Apple. You know they've mm. they've got a lot going on. It's true. They slight oversight on uh, on our show apparently. Yeah, but uh, that should be up, and you can go listen <laughs> to uh, Doctor Eager in uh, in Austin. Kent. Have you uh, have you quickly scanned the ad reads, Doc? Is it all in in good order? Because it wasn't when I was doing the ad reads, and it led to some some problems. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't listen. There was some issues. For a start, I, I started to read the wrong ad on the basis that apparently our title sponsor was no longer our title sponsor. And then the promo code in one of our ads was not our promo code. It was somebody else's. So there was a lot of confusion. The ad reads didn't go as smoothly. As oh, they... yeah. You're supposed to read ahead of time. You're supposed to check that out. I did. Not somebody during the show. Somebody fixes the document. I assume somebody fixed the document. I would never. I would never read it for the first time ever right on the show. No. Would never do that. Well, I did. And it, it didn't go well. No. Well, hey, it's not easy hosting this thing, right? The mom, the mom keeping it all together. I'm just, I, I work in a Bill Belichick type of system, right? I, I do my job. I assume yeah. somebody else is going to do their job, and it doesn't work if they don't. Well, I'm not doing that other people's jobs for them. So I'm the Bill Belichick of this podcast, keeping it all together. No, you're just another person that operates in a Bill Belichick system. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Okay. My wife's saying, Bill Belichick of our The, the Belichick vacation. system falls apart if you start trying to do other people's jobs in addition to your own. Yeah. So I let my wife do all the planning and all that stuff and then take care of it. Yeah. We just, just followed her wherever we just, where are we driving to now? Vacation, honey. But uh, it's good to be back. Ready to go? Yeah. What are we talking about today? Well, one, we've got updates. The charity update. The, the winner was me. Winner in, in very, you know, air quotes, because frankly, nobody's a winner at the end of this thing. Um, so my forfeit after raising $2,550 for Sunshine Kids was to recreate a Jackson Mahomes TikTok dance. Now, this caused some controversy, right? Because this is a world where it's very easy to offend people. Um, and I, so I canvassed opinion, you know, how far is too far when it comes to taking the piss out of people. Uh, and I was told that essentially you can dress up as Jackson Mahomes, even if you look like me, as long as you don't, you know, use the hair. The hair was the cutoff point, right? So I, I didn't rock the wig. 
but I did dress up in the outfit. Now, Austin screwed me out of his chain. The man voluntarily wears that giant gold chain thing and then didn't today, so I couldn't get the chain. But we have the Chief starter jacket. We have what were supposed to be skinny jeans, but I overestimated a little bit on the size on the basis that that's better than underestimating and not being able to put them on. So we have the skinny jeans, we have the starter jacket, and we have the TikTok dance, and myself and Tyler recorded this thing here before you showed up today. So this is the first time you're going to see it. Roll it, Tyler. Back in the sixth grade, I got the bad grades. I was in love with my tutor. See, musically lose, you trapping, man. <laughs> Most of you rappers be actors, man. Back in the sixth grade, I got the bad grades. Done. I was in love that's with it? Tutor. Six. That's only a seven-second thing. That, that's how long the TikToks are. Back in the sixth grade, I got the bad grades. I was face? in love with my tutor. No, it was just the face that naturally ended up getting pulled. Ah, oh, see, you gotta... Like Back in the sixth grade, I got the bad grades. Gotta, I was in love with my tutor. You gotta speak with your facial expressions. Yeah. A little bit more. Well, maybe that's why I'm not a professional dancer. See, that's why he's attracted millions and millions of whatever he's attracted. Yeah. And why I have 2,100. <laughs> so you said I had the easy thing. Yeah. I was going to go through a whole day of combine drills. Yeah. And you just did a six-second TikTok. Do you know how many moves are in that six-second TikTok? That better not just I think roll this is like constantly every, throughout the entire show now. No, I think what we need is each of these moves is going to mean something. So every time you make a good point, I think the, I think the double gun yeah. is a good point. I think the heart is when you, when you finally love something. Right when you when you actually like, as as the, the hater that you are and you just did your fatal flaws show with Austin and all when you love something I think we just show the image of you with the heart. It's gonna be great once Tyler realizes that he could probably put that up on the window behind us and just have it running. No, that's a window constantly. It's a window the entire thing. Anyway, so I'm out. I'm done. Now we're on to baseball. So the next charity we got to set one up. We got to set up the uh, the GoFundMe again. But over next, under sixty miles an hour. Yes, we're finally there. We're finally at the over under. Will Sam. Pitching a baseball vaguely in the direction of the plate using no crow hop, just the one step off the mound. Can he hit 60 miles an hour? Yes or no? That's what we're raising money for now. So we've got to come up with a new charity. Um, email us in, nflpodcast at pff.com. All the contact details that we have on the screen whenever that goes up. Um, NFL Podcast, PFF, NFL Pod on Twitter. Send us in suggestions. Who can we raise money for this time? And then we will start raising money and see if I can hit 60 miles an hour, which, of course, I will. Huge. 60 miles an hour. Not a problem. Cole Strange. Yeah. That first pitch that he threw. Yeah. At the uh, Chattanooga Lookouts game. The Chattanooga Lookouts? Yeah. Chattanooga Lookouts. <laughs> I assume I think that it's was still like a, Cincinnati. I think it's Cincinnati's double. I assumed been, that was like at a Red Sox game or something. They didn't no, no, like no. wheel him out at something. Well, no, because he went to UTC, uh, UT Chattanooga. Not for baseball. No, but he. It's just he's a hometown hero. No, I know. I'm just saying. That judging by his throw, he didn't go there. Oh, he did not go baseball. there for baseball. But my uh, my professional opinion is that pitch was somewhere in the 40s. Okay, that pitch looked like somebody would never thrown anything before. Yeah, right. I think I can do better than that. Markedly better. Just saying. When you're 40, 40 to 60 is a big difference. Yeah. I think you're closer to Cole Strange than you are me. You know what else is, you know what else is a big difference? The difference between somebody that's ever thrown anything in their life and somebody that just rolls in there and he's told, like, fire that ball towards the guy. How often have you thrown things? How often have I thrown things? Plenty. Okay. 
All right. I'm just saying, like, when you hand a ball to a three-year-old and say, throw that, right, and they grab this thing and it's like a shot putt, it looks like Philip Rivers, right, there's a difference between that and somebody that can, you know, throw a ball. I just saw you, I just saw you imitating a motion. I don't, I don't think that's a 60-mile-an-hour motion. Chair. Like, of course you can't throw 60 from the chair. I think I can throw 40 from the chair. I can read your arm action, Sam. <laughs> you can read my arm action from that. Professional pitching coach here. Yeah? Yeah turned down a job with the Astros to, to, to go to PFF. Okay. Well, I tell you what, we can, we can also we can add some spice to this one, right? That you and I can have our own little side bet of how much money that we will put into the pot. Okay. So I will hit 60. You don't believe I will. What, what monetary value are we going to put on that that somebody has Probably to Probably like something it? above and below. 100 bucks for like every mile an hour above or below or something like that. Well, we have to... Or 10 bucks or whatever. Whatever the amount is. I mean, I'm just... Yeah. We'll figure it out. We'll figure out our side bet. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit of football here. <sighs> I guess. Um, so are you going to set that up? The... Yeah. Uh, we'll set up a GoFundMe. We need, as I say, people to email us in, give us a charity to raise money for this time. Um, and then we'll set it, set it rolling and get, uh, get raising money. All right. We're going to get into the, the entire show. But first, this podcast is sponsored by Sunday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where I went wrong. That's where you went wrong? Yeah. Look at me. Keeping it on point. Our friends at Sunday, does your lawn have weeds, bear patches, or pet spots? Sunday can help you solve all these problems and more the easy way. They've got everything you need from fertilizer to seeds to weed control, and it's all delivered right to your door. Now, it's been delivered to my door, but because I was on vacation, haven't been able to use it yet, you have. Oh, I've been using it. I was out, certainly in the front lawn. Just a little pouch. You whack it on the hose. So you sweep that out. Spray it away. So it really is that easy. Yeah. Awesome. Sunday can help you grow a beautiful lawn without the guesswork or the nasty chemicals. Their custom plans include fertilizer and everything you need to easily care for your lawn. You can feel good with kids and pets being around. Just attach the ready-to-use pouch to a garden hose and spray. It takes less than 15 minutes. And Sunday's offering our listeners 20% off. So full-season plans, they start at just $129, and you can get 20% off at checkout when you visit GetSunday.com slash NFLPod. It's 20% off your custom plan at GetSunday.com slash NFLPod. Pretty easy to use. Very easy to use. Awesome. Well, go check it out. GetSunday.com slash NFLPod. Thanks to our friends at Sunday for sponsoring the podcast. All right, Sam, what do we have for uh, emails that uh, are are pushing this podcast forward here? Yeah, we got in an email from somebody called Alex Ford. Um, Hi, Simon C. Big fan of the show here from the U.K., where is that, Steve? British Isles. It's part of the British Isles. Good enough. Yeah. I've been listening for about two years uh, and a bit, and on and off before that. Love the content. Quick props to you both of the charity work you've been doing, blah, blah, blah. I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine trying to defend some of the PFF grading, and an analogy sprang to mind. Maybe this one is more for Sam than Steve. I mean, it's, it's true, but it's got The analogy? Stay. The fact that, you know, if you're talking analogies, it's... Oh, yeah, this is directed at you, yeah. then. You go get them. I want to get your thoughts on whether uh, that's how to think of it or whether I'm missing the point entirely. Uh, essentially, he was questioning why people like Nate Hobbs and uh, Tavera Thomas were grading so highly but not highly regarded. Was it just a case of PFF seeing good play before the press, or was there something else going on? My counter was that the grading system tells you how well an individual played on a given down but that some of those tasks are more valuable or at least more highly sought after by NFL teams. Somewhat like a gymnast or a diver in the Olympics. They'll choose a routine which has a level of difficulty attached to it, and then they'll get graded on uh, how well they perform. 
essentially PFF grade is like an execution score. How well did they do uh, that thing on that down? Hobbs and Thomas are executing at a high level, but it's different to what a Razul Douglas is doing. Although he, Douglas, had a lower grade than Hobbs or Thomas, he's been mentioned frequently as having a strong campaign because of execution outside corner that's so coveted in the NFL, while the value of slot players is still relatively low in comparison. Similar idea with other positions, slot wide receivers, simplified offenses for quarterbacks, etc., etc. Mac Jones graded well, but it's not apples to apples with Mahomes or Rodgers. You can't build a team where everyone is doing the easy stuff. At some point, someone has to get their hands dirty and try and block Aaron Donald. I know this is probably stuff you do in your analysis for teams, but thought it could help us chumps make more sense of the grades. Thanks for taking the time to have a look at this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I figured the off-season, off-season is a good time for a how-we-read-the-data talk. Uh, Hope you're having a great break, Steve. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. And then I have one when I'm off. And you're taking a huge break soon. I mean, maybe. We'll see. You're out of here soon. All right, so did you want to attack this? Do you want me to start? You can start. Okay, yeah. I mean, so the, the question's basically like Nate Hobbs was a rookie slot corner for the Raiders last year. Tavier Thomas, uh, slot corner for the Texans last year. They both graded pretty well. I think just first off, position difficulty does come into play. Both players in a – Hobbs especially a zone-heavy system, and I think the more we're learning about the slot corner in the Gus Bradley cover three system, that was Desmond King's role – for years with the Chargers, I think we're learning that that difficulty is a little bit on the easy side as far as the grading goes. And again, I, every time I say something's easy, it's with much respect for NFL players. I'm not saying Joe Schmo goes out there. I'm saying in, the, in terms of NFL play and grading slot corners, we're not necessarily adjusting directly for that in the grades. There are certain things that can be adjusted for, uh, situational stuff and everything, but uh, a zone-heavy system where you're playing in the slot, not necessarily being adjusted for. Um, that said, it also doesn't mean that Nate Hobbs isn't really good or that Thomas, Tavier Thomas, isn't really good. But we also have only just seen one, a one-year breakout for those guys as well, right? So, it's, so I, don't know, I don't know what I'm arguing against, so to speak, like who hasn't caught on to Hobbs and Thomas had good seasons, but at the same time, I think you could also say it was also just one good season for both players in slot roles that probably land on the easier side at a position of high volatility. The, yeah. the quarterback stuff, maybe we could talk about more, but I, mean, the I just broad, wanted to address the slot stuff first. The broad strokes of it is the idea that the PFF grade is – phrasing that as an execution grade I think is actually a good way of it describing it. We've – talked about it before as like in a you know a play efficiency measure those kinds of things but an execution grade is actually a pretty good way of describing it um and yet there are differences of guys who are executing extremely well but executing a job that is simpler than other players um and that doesn't necessarily show up so part of this is somebody asked before and and eric gave a, a little brief explanation of the, the concept of expectation, you know, and specifically when you kind of build that into advanced metrics and CPOE and all that kind of stuff. But the PFF grading actually has expectation built into it as well, right? The default grade is a zero um, on our scale of plus two to minus two in 0.5 increments. When you're collecting the grade, 
that zero is expected. That's the expectation of any given player on any given play. And that's like the default. That's what you're starting off with. And then if you do something good or bad on a given play, that grade is going to move from zero up or down. So there is expectation built into this. So, so being, having an easy roll is not necessarily just going to inflate your grade, right? Because automatically there's a, an assumed level of play right off the bat. Um, but there are players that have an exceptionally difficult role, which is going to hamper their grade because that's just harder to do. It's harder to grade well doing those kinds of things. And you see that corner is a good example of where that influences, but it tends not to be, you know, slot corners getting artificially inflated as much as guys that are isolated on number one receivers, tracking them all the time. You know, guys with the hardest possible role in a defense, the Darrell Rivas's of the world. Patrick Peterson had this for a while with Arizona. Guys that literally were told go cover their best receiver and follow him wherever he goes that's about as hard a job as it's going to get in the nfl outside a quarterback and if you're doing that you're automatically behind the eight ball you're you're just you have a harder gig than everybody else so you're going to grade a little bit worse um and i think that's where that shows up and i think you and i tried to add that context in our analysis right we'll say right. hey this guy had um stefan gilmore right when stefan gilmore was the highest graded corner in the nfl for a three-year stretch, 2017, 18, 19, believe it was. He was also in one of the more challenging systems where he wasn't always facing the number one, but he was always playing man coverage. He was sometimes facing the number one, sometimes facing the number two, often without safety help. But we have found in our system, man coverage is a little bit harder to grade high in man coverage versus zone coverage. So Stephon Gilmore was the highest graded or close to the highest graded corner every year of those uh, those three seasons and was playing man coverage and we try to add that context in when we're talking about a player's grade hey this guy graded well and here's what he was asked to do i do think there might be a world where we add in difficulty level a little bit right um the tricky part i think about football is sometimes difficulty is is player driven and sometimes it's situation driven right if you are an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman, you're generally put into a situation, right? It's third and 10 and you have to pass protect. It's third and 10 and you get to pass rush or you get put into a zone blocking scheme or a gap blocking scheme or whatever it is uh, as a lineman. As a corner, you get put into a zone scheme or a man scheme into the slot or outside. As a quarterback, though, sometimes you kind of dictate your own circumstances, right? A play is called, let's call it drive, right? Everybody runs drive in the NFL, you can throw the dig, you can throw the shallow cross, right? You, you can actually choose your aggressiveness level. So it's not always as simple as, well, the quarterback was placed into an easy situation, a difficult situation. Unpacking the quarterback situation is a little bit about play caller, a lot about supporting cast, and a little bit his own circumstances. This is where our Kirk Cousins debate comes in all the time, right? And you always reference that perfect... Uh, aggressiveness curve where Kirk is is on the conservative side when he's supposed to be aggressive and whatever it's just not matching up right so the quarterback probably somewhat dictates his situation as far as the difficulty of the plays the throws that he makes but he also has a lot of dependency as far as who he's throwing to who's blocking for him and all that stuff so there's a lot to unpack in football but I think putting the grade as execution production we've called it 
uh, contribution to production, right? Like, what are you producing on this play? Um, I've always I've called it finding the truth in every play, right? Here's this ten yard gain, and there's a lot of people involved in it. Who, you know, where do where do you divvy up credit there? Um, but I do think the idea of uh, execution grade is is a good one. Yeah, and quarterback, I think generally is just a very unique thing that it's 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 always going to require a lot more dependency on everything else than it is with other positions. So even the quarterback, yeah, they can dictate a lot of these things. But then we've talked before about how look play calling can screw a quarterback. If you're calling runs on first and ten every time, you're putting the quarterback in harder third down situations, which is the thing that he doesn't dictate, right? Like unless he's checking out of runs on first down and passing anyway that guy can't avoid the success or otherwise that the run play is going to have. And this has happened, you know, the last few years you've seen it impacting various quarterbacks where their third down job is harder because the play calling on first and second down hasn't been what you want it to look like. Um, But other positions, I think there's a couple of things. One, the PFF grades have been pretty good at getting out in front of players succeeding before, you know, they get full recognition, right? Those guys, the kind of reputation of a player being good either comes out of the box already, right? Like guys that the league just decided were going to be good from draft time and immediately it that guy's just assumed to be good. Um, or happens at a position where it's obvious, right? Like Jamar Chase. You don't need a lag time with that, right? You can see right. Jamar Chase destroying number one corners every single week as a rookie. It's pretty obvious. Uh, for other positions, though, it tends to operate at a lag you need like a year of seeing a guy being good before everybody goes yeah you know this guy's pretty good we should pff grade is going to know that from the outset like richard sherman was amazing as a rookie casey hayward was amazing as a rookie um but because those guys harris was in that yeah but because those guys were fifth round picks undrafted free agents you know low round guys that didn't come in with the reputation it took a little bit of time before everybody kind of got on the same page and was like hey those guys are amazing and they ended up being three of the best cornerbacks of their generation. And for pretty much day one, those guys were grading amazingly well. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, that we would, not, we would not ever say, well, Nate Hobbs graded better than Denzel Ward. Therefore, give Nate Hobbs the Denzel Ward money, right? right? Denzel Ward just made a ton of money from the Browns. Um, he's their number one corner. Uh, we also don't just look at one year, right? Uh, it's, it's about multiple years of of grading and trends and all that stuff so it's a data point uh but it is a production grade and one the last story i'll add to this and i have told this one before but like when chip kelly came into the office to hear about this grading system and he was like any other coach that talks about us in the media and it's like oh those pff guys they don't know what they're talking about they can't grade my players this and that we were talking about offensive line play and i was just explaining how we grade a, a left tackle say on a given play and he was like i just don't look at foot i just don't look at football the same way you guys do basically uh i i'm looking at what uh i'm looking at this player's traits i'm looking at his knee bend i'm looking at how he handles pass protection i'm looking at all these other things and i said well we're looking at did he did he win or lose his blocks in the run game and in pass protection so we just had this conversation about we're looking at and valuing different things and and that's all fine but I think you have to understand the PFF grades through that lens, right? We took a thousand snaps of this offensive lineman and said, were these plays good, bad, or indifferent? And over time, those production grades are really good at then taking that player and saying, okay, when I'm looking 
forward, which scheme do I put this player in? What can I expect from him in the run game? What can I expect from him in the pass game? Um, so it's about knowing how to kind of put the grades to use here, but also knowing what we're looking at. Because what, what NFL teams will do is put grades on players just like they do for the draft. This guy's a 6.5. This guy's a 9, right? The famous 9 that Dave Gettleman put out there. This guy's an elite player, a superstar, a future starter, a backup, or whatever it is. And that's, that's kind of like their Madden grade, right? That's kind of like the, here's what this guy is and what I can expect for him going forward. The PFF grade that is available in premium stats, a part of your PFF elite and edge packages, that is a descriptor of what this guy has done, right, on right. the field. And I think a very, very good one description of what a guy has done in his particular role, but there's still more work to be done. It's a good baseline for projecting a guy going forward, but you still have to add more context when you're looking to project a guy going forward. And that level of expectation, that zero grade built into the system, I think is a big differentiator between that and a lot of other systems or a lot of other grades out there, in particular the ones inside NFL buildings, right? So you'll hear a lot of the time people say, oh, this guy graded average, but his his coach gave him like a 95, right? His coach said he was almost perfect in that game. And it's because the coaching systems, as far as I'm aware, to a man, I haven't come across one that isn't like this they're just binary they're yes or no plus or minus they're did you do your job yes did you do your job no and they'll throw a couple double pluses in there right again but there's no zero there's no expected because there's a lot of plays right where the job of the offensive lineman actually perfectly matches the job of the defensive lineman in terms of what they're expected to do right it's essentially control a gap and if the both those guys are happy to control the same gap Nobody's really doing anything, right? Those two guys are happy to occupy the same space, and therefore, how hard is that, right? And that's that's like a tackle blocking an edge defender who has to keep contained. Yeah, and the tackle's also trying to block him out, right? So it's it's a wash, pretty yeah, much. Or, both you know, guys are meeting expectations. You see it sometimes, you know, center and nose tackle. They're both supposed to occupy the backside a gap, right? It's like, well, if you're both happy being in that gap, then how hard is it to make that block? If he's his job is literally to be there anyway, all you got to do is make sure he doesn't inv- involve himself in the play on the other side. It's it's not that hard, right? Particularly, you expect an NFL offensive lineman or defensive lineman to make that play. So in PFF system, those guys are getting zero grades, which isn't to say no grade. Like it, that's the expected grade. You're getting the average grade because both guys are expected to make that play as NFL players. Coaches are giving both those guys positives. They're saying, yeah, good. You did your job. Excellent. Plus. Not a negative. Not a, it's a plus. So when you add up all those, that guy ends up getting a 95. But if half the plays in the game were expected plays, he's not going to get a high PFF grade, which isn't to say that he did a bad job. It's simply to say that like, there's a degree of, to which that game was expected because of the, e- the relative ease of what he was asked to do. And we've made this point before, too. A coach is only looking at his team and his, his players' results and all that stuff. We're looking at every team, NFL and college, actually, and saying, what do we expect from a right tackle in the run game as far as wins and losses and neutral plays, right? That's where the expectation comes in. So we hear that a lot, too. Well, there was only five bad pass blocks in this game. How did this guy have a bad grade? Well, five is really bad for a guard. It's below average for a tackle, right? It's... It's horrendous for a center, right? I mean, so it depends on the position. And five bad pass blocks out of 60 or out of 50 or out of 40 
is generally pretty bad, you know, because we have a baseline of what that expectation is. If you want to be average, you only have two bad ones or three bad ones or whatever that might be. So um, good question and good time of year to always discuss yeah. uh, some of the mechanics of the, uh, the grading process. Off-season season. Um, all right, second email in from, hey, guys, Matt from Miami here. First time, first time, long time. I agree with Steve that the biggest storyline of the NFL offseason this year was what happened with the receivers. The situation with teams that lost a wide receiver, Kansas City, Green Bay, Tennessee, reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from my favorite sports movie, Moneyball. Uh, and then he quotes, which we're going to pull up in a minute. Guys, you're still trying to replace Giambi. I told you we can't do it. Now, what we might be able to do is recreate him in the aggregate. I think we have that clip. Fire it up. Tyler. Billy, we got 38 home runs and 120 RBIs. Guys, you're still trying to replace Giambi. I told you we can't do it, and we can't do it. Now, what we might be able to do is recreate him. Recreate him in the aggregate. The what? Giambi's on-base percentage was 477. Damon's on-base, 324. And Almeida's was 291. Add that up, and you get... You want me to speak? What number point are you get? 1092. Divided by three. It's 364. That's what we're looking for. We're three ball players, three ball players whose average OBP is 364. It's Giambi, by the way, but it's cool. That's kind of how he was pronouncing the movie, though. Anyway, so. What it really comes down to in the offseason for the teams listed above is, did they succeed in recreating Hill, Adams, or Brown in the aggregate? So the question for you guys is, does Tyreek Hill equal Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Juju, and Sky Moore? Devontae Adams equal Christian Watson, Robert Tunyon returning from injury, um, Romeo Dubs. A.J. Brown equal Robert Woods and Traylon Burks. I'd argue that only Kansas City succeeded, as those three receivers each have a skill set that can replace one key thing that Hill brought to the table. I could see a case for Tennessee, too. Does the answer change for Green Bay if they add someone like Odell or Will Fuller or uh, Sammy Watkins? They did. Also, fun fact, the New York Yankees were the team to get Jason Giambi after he left Oakland. Both teams ended up losing uh, in the first round of that postseason, so perhaps this analogy is an ill omen for both the teams acquiring and losing their starting wide receivers. Matthew. I think it's a great analogy overall. And just to piggyback on the analogy, uh, one of the, the unsung heroes at PFF, a guy named Mike Parker. Never, he'll never be on the podcast. Maybe we'll get him on sometime, actually. He'll never be on the podcast, uh, likely. But behind the scenes, he is like the key point, point person for all of our team clients, right? He goes in, talks to teams. He, he heads up our service team for NFL, college clients, everybody. And he's used this analogy before, right? He always has to go in... He's kind of the one who has to do a lot of the dirty work and explain to the coaches what the grades mean and a lot of the stuff that we were just discussing. And he uses this, he uses Moneyball analogy a lot. It's like he gets on base. Uh, why did Nate Hobbs grade well? He gets on base. He just, you know, executes his job. He just uh, does his job well. So this is not a, it's not a new analogy for us at PFF, but it's a, it's a keen one from a listener to, uh, to use that. So... Um, Oh, I see what we just did. So I like the analogy. It, it makes me, I, I've been anti, you know, I, I, think, I think the Chiefs and Packers got worse on the surface, right, with Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams and you know, even in the Titans, right? They all, I think they all got worse without wide receiver one. But I'm open to the idea that 
the aggregate can can make up for it. And I would say that the Chiefs have done the best job of that. Yeah. And I also think that the Chiefs have the best combination. I mean, Mahomes, I give Mahomes the slight edge over Rodgers overall as a quarterback, even though Rodgers is – maybe that's unfair. Rodgers graded well the last couple of years. I still think Mahomes – going forward, he'll be fine. But combined – let's say it's a wash between Mahomes and Rodgers and the, the system and all that stuff. I think the Chiefs have done the best job there. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it like that and you say which – which effort at replacing a star wide receiver has the greatest potential of replacing that guy in the aggregate? I think the Chiefs are the answer. Like Marquez Valdez-Scantling replaces the deep threat element of Tyreek Hill. Um, Sky Moore, I think, replaces the short area quickness and the underneath stuff that Tyreek Hill does well. Juju adds the receiver. <laughs> Juju's not bringing any particular skill set that Tyreek Hill had, but he's another body that can be productive, that we've seen, can operate the slot, work in zones, can make some plays. So those three together, I think, have a reasonable shot of equaling something akin to Tyreek Hill in one player, particularly when you factor in that you could argue that Tyreek Hill was not their number one receiver, that Travis Kelsey's their number one wide receiver, or number one receiver, right, over the last – since Patrick Mahomes has been the starter, Travis Kelsey has more targets, more yards, more catches, more yards after the catch. Um, I think Hill has him for touchdowns, but basically every other metric, it's been Travis Kelsey. So arguably, their number one receiver is still there, and you're trying to just replace a Tyree Kill with three additional guys, each of whom I think brings something to the table and can actually give a reasonable shot at doing that. Now, you look at the other two, I think it's a lot harder to make that argument. Christian Watson, Robert Tunyon returning from injury, Romeo Dubs, Sammy Watkins. I just that doesn't feel like a that doesn't feel like a composite that replaces Devontae Adams, right? Who is essentially the best wide receiver in the game, a massive high volume guy, a guy that cannot be stopped in single coverage. Can anybody in that group do that? Like it's this is just that feels a lot more like let's just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and hope some of it sticks and some of it will be able to replace or go in a different direction to Devontae Adams. Um, and then the A.J. Brown one, I'm not even sure you can count Robert Woods because you brought him in before you got rid of him. So Robert Woods was almost like replacing Julio, you know, replacing the other threat, trying to give you the extra guy. It was already offense. a need. Even if A.J. Brown's on the team, Robert Woods was a need. Right, and it felt like a move to, you know, the, to make sure that you had enough threats in addition to A.J. Brown that the whole offense functioned. Then you get rid of A.J. Brown, it's like, well, now that's, that's basically a like for like, can Traylon Burks be A.J. Brown? So, so I think, let, let's back up really quick here. I want to describe what Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams, and A.J. Brown all bring to the table. Because I think it's different, right? It, it is, I've been using this broad, well, they're wide receiver one, right? They're an elite wide receiver. But I don't think people really understand the, the effect that Tyreek Hill has on defenses. Again, we say this broadly, but the two high shell and it doesn't mean that teams are just playing cover two it means they're legitimately having to play certain coverages and it's not just cover two it's quarters and it's it's cover six and all that stuff but it's also like when Tyreek Hill is in the slot you've made this point before too if you want Tyreek Hill to run five yard routes all day he will catch 160 balls if you want him to 
he will if he decides if you want him to run over routes, which by the way is what the Dolphins basically were doing with Jalen Waddle last year. Yes, like Jalen Waddle had a lot of twelve catch games and right, stuff. Right, line him up in the slot. His deep threat scares teams into playing two high safeties, and then you just run him into the middle and give him five yard catches twelve times. Yes, but then if Tyree Kill runs an over route from the slot. The people that have to pay attention to that, the linebacker has to know because he could because he also runs this like option route where he just stops in the middle field. That both the two there's two linebackers that have to account for him. There's the the weak side safety has to account for him because if he decides to take off, the safety needs to like get a head start just to keep up with him, right? Um, if he lines up outside, you certainly can't just have a cornerback one on one. This was again the Alex Smith year. Every time there was single high and there was a one on one outside, even Alex Smith was throwing the ball deep to Tyreek Hill. So you have to have a safety over the top there. I mean, the the structure of coverages, not as simple as, well, they're in too high all the time. The structure of coverage has to account for where Tyreek Hill is because he can beat you to every level of the field, but most importantly, he's going to beat you to the deep part of the field if, he, if they want to, and you have to stop that. With Devontae Adams, it was more, this guy can convert a first down at any time, right? Slot, outside, uh, if you play man, he's got great rapport with Aaron Rodgers. You get the back shoulder game. You got all that stuff. He's going to run slants really well. He's just going to get open against zone, against man, and he's going to move the chains. And they're going to move him around in the slot and outside, and you have to account for him, and he's going to move the chains on you. You're not as afraid that he's going to take the top off the defense, but he's capable of all that stuff as well. And then with A.J. Brown, he just took over games. Remember the game against the Ravens? He broke eight tackles. Uh, basically on two different plays, where he just decided, I'm going to take over this game and win it for the Titans. And he's the one who turns a simple 12-yard out into an 80-yard touchdown, right? He did that a number of times. Three years into his career, A.J. Brown has done that several times. Turned simple routes into long touchdowns, right? So you just, again... You, you have to account for him to a point. It's not that he's going to run by you all the time like a Tyree kill or anything like that. It's just at any given time, A.J. Brown can absolutely take over a game, right? So is that a fair description of the three different players, even though they're all wide receiver one? Yeah. So is that what you want to is, – is that what you directly need to replace in the aggregate, right? So with Tyree kill, you need to replace coverage dictator and – a guy who can win at every level of the field at any time. Devontae Adams, it's a first-down conversion master. And then with A.J. Brown, who in, any, in a given week where the offense, you've only scored 10 points and it's the fourth quarter, who's going to take over a game and just decide, hey, here's a 70-yard touchdown for you. Here's a play where I'm just going to win and nobody's going to stop me. Have, have those particular attributes been replaced – or do they need to? Or is that kind of what we're talking about? The whole, it's the aggregate thing. You're not going to replace those things directly. So the only problem, one of the things that each of those guys has in common, um, and this is generally speaking what number one wide receivers have, and that X wide receiver profile, the reason it's so valuable, the reason it's so coveted, the reason teams um, factor that in so much when you're, start, when you're thinking about draft receivers. Like, which of these guys, great as they are, have the ability to be that number one X-type receiver? Um, it's essentially, it really boils down to can they beat press coverage, right? That's, generally speaking, the difference between the X and the Z receiver is the X is going to be on the line of scrimmage, vulnerable to facing press coverage, often on an island. And if he can't beat press coverage, he's not going to be a good X-wide receiver. 
Um, he's going to need to be the Z, which is the guy that moves in motion, the guy that gets shifted around, can be taken off the line of scrimmage, so you get him away from that press coverage. And you'll see that happen with players sometimes. They start off as X. They can't really survive at the next level against press. They get moved, and suddenly they get rejuvenated. They're a different receiver. So you look at how these guys have performed against press coverage in the last couple of seasons, and all three of these guys are amongst the most dangerous receivers in the NFL when you press them. Devontae Adams, the only guy with more yards per route run against press coverage in the last two years, I think, is Justin Jefferson, which, by the way, speaks a lot to Justin Jefferson, right? That dude's insane. Um, so Devontae Adams is number two. A.J. Brown is number four, tied with Stephon Diggs. Like, these are guys that dominate against press coverage. Tyreek Hill isn't quite as high in yards per route run, but Tyreek Hill has one of the best touchdown rates of any receiver in the NFL against press coverage. So if you line up in press against Tyreek Hill – and you miss, boom, gone, gone. score, touchdown. Um, A.J. Brown is also in the top ten of that, as is Devontae Adams. So these are three guys where if you put press coverage on them, they're probably going to beat it, and if they beat it, they may well be torching you for the tune of a touchdown. Um, the one area where when you look at the composite of these receivers that they're not going to patch that up is that, right? So even like Marquez Valdez-Scantling brings the deep threat, brings that deep speed, the size, all that kind of stuff. He doesn't have good numbers at all against press coverage. He's not that number one X receiver type of player. And if you get a guy up in his face, you're generally speaking going to cause him problems. His PFF grade against press coverage the last couple of years is in the 60s, whereas these best guys were 20 points higher. His yards per route run figure is 1.3, which is a third almost of um, Justin Jefferson. Like He is not replacing that element. And that's the thing in common with all these three, with these teams is they've traded away a number one guy that can dominate against press coverage as the outside or on the outside as an X receiver. And when you look at the replacements, is there anybody across the board for all three teams that can do that? I mean, so that so that could be the difference, right? When you're playing the Chiefs this year, so like Valdez Scanling, I'd describe him as like the role that he just played in Green Bay. I think was the perfect role. He's the number three slash four receiver. Once every three weeks or so, he's got a 50-yard touchdown, whatever it is, you know, it feels like it. Um, and that's great. I mean, that's, that's extremely valuable. Love having that guy on my team. But now he's making $10 million a year. That's not crazy. But are you going to expect more from him? This is, you know, the point I made with um, – I've made this with other receivers before. Is this guy going to be a designated deep threat, or are you going to try to feed him targets? I think your point is if you try to feed Valdez Scantling targets because you're paying him a certain amount of money, it's going to be trouble, right? I mean, it, even when Green Bay, you saw a lot of times early in his career he wasn't on the same page as Rodgers. He's not a dynamic underneath receiver. He's a designated deep threat, right? So once every three or four weeks he's going to get behind the defense and they're going to hit a deep ball to Valdez Scantling. If you're playing the Chiefs this year, are you going to play press coverage because of, because of what you said, right? You, the, the whole schematic limitations might change for defenses now because you could play press coverage. You could th- and when you play press man, you play cover one, you, th- you, you have two extra defenders. One guy plays deep. One guy can do what he wants, play underneath. That guy can double Kelsey, right? Maybe you've got, one, you've got two guys on Kelsey and then say, okay, Juju, Sky Moore, Valdez Scantling, Hardman, whoever's out there. Go beat us in one-on-one coverage. I'm not as afraid to do that as a defensive coordinator, especially a team, a Dolphins team that plays a man, a Patriots team that historically plays, plays man, whatever it might be. I'm not as afraid to do that 
against the Chiefs this year. And now if, if one of those guys doesn't get open immediately, then you get to that whole, well, Mahomes is holding the ball again, right? And now he's going to scramble out. And maybe it's tough to you know remain sticky on those receivers or whatever, and Mahomes makes plays. But I could see that being a strategy for opposing teams this year because they're not afraid of any of those guys, unless Sky Moore just really hits the ground running. So that's the thing. I think Sky Moore has actually the potential to do that. When you watched him play against press coverage at the college level, um, he didn't have problems against it. Like, that wasn't a thing that you looked at in his game and said, immediately limits him as a slot receiver at the next level. Can't play against press coverage. Um, Now, look, that's a difficult evaluation to make a lot of the time because college receivers don't see a lot of press coverage. So there's a ton of projection involved. But I think Sky Moore could possibly do that. And if he can, like, that's the answer to that riddle. The other answer is potentially Travis Kelsey. Like, Kelsey can't be pressed. You can't put a corner one-on-one against Travis Kelsey and have him jam him at the line. Teams have tried, and it doesn't go well. Like, there's a bunch of plays that I looked at recently where, again, he just destroys a corner and press man coverage of the line, catches a slant. The dude falls off him because he's too big, and it's a 30-yard play. So the Chiefs might end up using Travis Kelsey even more as their number one X-type receiver. And this is something that has been happening more, right? The Falcons with Kyle Pitts, same idea. Like Pitts is their X receiver. Pitts is the guy that can defeat press coverage one-on-one. And Pitts actually ranks top five in yards per right run against press coverage after his rookie season. So that is, is one potential answer. And again, it sort of indicates that, hey, of all these teams, the Chiefs are probably the one that's in good shape. Now, to be fair to Tennessee, Robert Woods can do that as well. So they already have that in place but then you have the dynamic of well is woods replacing aj brown or was he just supposed to be there anyway and it's it's really comes down to what Traylon burks brings who by the way did you see the reports on him yeah so he sent me a, a message he's having trouble at uh breathing difficulty or something and was reportedly not in great shape yeah it just if the know. shape if if being in shape ends up becoming a big issue for Traylon burks that's that's going to be uh yeah, I mean, look, it's one. May, right? So anything you're hearing in May generally is not a big deal. What were we overreacting to last year in May? Justin Fields wasn't the starter. Yeah, so I mean, everybody's mad at Nagy. It's May, so who the hell knows? But I think while I was on vacation, Tua slightly underthrew a deep ball, and that, yeah. that, was, that, was, that was important. We're starting to build a picture now of Traylon Burks, a guy who has had consistent issues with conditioning or maintaining weight or – maintaining a low enough weight i'm just saying that that that's not a good pattern to be piecing together as we said that you you start listening to the or start listing out the receivers that have had that issue there's not a lot of good ones yeah i mean here's the other thing too as much as we just spent months talking about the draft and all that stuff it's also unrealistic to think well here's this guy he's going to immediately replace things it was kind of the point you've been making about like well justin jefferson a couple years ago immediately replaced stefan diggs and like that's a home run for the Vikings. It's also unrealistic, right? There's very few times that we're in the season and it's week 10 and it's like, wow, this team's now 7-3 and three and it's all thanks to their rookie class. This rookie class put them over the top. It happens sometimes. Like the 2017 Saints, incredible draft class of rookies and they had five contributors right away and all that stuff. It's just a rare thing. So we're talking about Sky Moore being a part of this big replacement for for Tyreek Hill it might happen over the next four years might not happen in week one or even by week 10 same thing with Traylon Burks is is how much is he going to replace things 
right away. And that's part of these decisions teams have made or were forced into in the Devontae Adams case. You're probably going to take a step back before you take a step forward. But the other part about the aggregate here, though, Sam, and I've made this point with Tyree Kill and the Chiefs, there are other also there are also other draft picks that were made right in you know in replace of Tyree Kill. So it's not just replacing the wide receiver production, it's also other parts of the team. And where in, in baseball you're always trying to, you know, maybe add offensive production for the most part, and there's a little bit of defensive production. In football, you have to worry about both sides of the ball somewhat equally. I would lean offense more than defense. But it's, a, it's certainly more of a, te- uh, a sport where you want to have fewer weaknesses. Um, and, and maybe having fewer weaknesses does work out in the long run rather than having elite strengths. And that is a, a big part of the decision that the Chiefs in particular made with Tyreek Hill. And I would say that the Titans probably made with, with A.J. Brown is that over the long haul, we're going to have more money. We've, we've got our money spread out in other places, and we think that's going to be the better play than A.J. Brown, whereas with the with the Packers somewhat forced into moving on from Devontae Adams. Yeah. I mean, a big part of it is not necessarily replacing a player in the aggregate. It's shifting allocation of resources. Yes. It's like we're, we're going to have to pay this guy $25, $27, million a year, or we could take that $30 million a year, take a chunk of it, and invest it in the receiving core and throw the rest somewhere else. And that, that ultimately is, is the decision teams are making. But I do like the analogy – I do like the clip, even though militant YouTube may have copyright dinged us for it. Um, and I like the discussion. Since we were talking about Traylon Burks and a potential <laughs> problem controlling his weight, Will Brinson, friend of the show? Has he been on the show? We've been, been on, on the show, show, yeah. We've been on his show. Yeah. Will Brinson uh, told a story about, because it's the PGA right now, right? So, and John Daly's doing well for five minutes, presumably. Um, but he was saying, since it's an opportune time to talk about John Daly, Back in the day, Will Brinson decided to follow him around the course for 18 holes and tally literally everything that he put into his body over 18 holes. So this was John Daly's routine over 18 holes of golf. We need to get Will on the show to, to break this down. Go ahead. 21 cigarettes, so more than one per, uh, per hole. 12 <laughs> Diet Cokes, six packs of peanut butter M&Ms, and not an ounce of water on a blazing hot day. In uh, Greensboro in mid-August. That's just phenomenal. 12 Diet Coke. Phenomenal conditioning. Man, water is like a legit PED, too. Like, water is a legit performance enhancer. I mean, certainly... Hydration is so crucial. Certainly compared to 12 Diet Cokes, it is. Oh, that's, that's Will's best tweet it's, I've it's ever seen. It's just phenomenal. Absolutely amazing. Wow. I'm just hoping Traylon Burks isn't at that level, you know? He's just just pounding, hopefully not ripping cigs, but, you know, <laughs> pounding Diet Cokes at, at minicamp. But that's why, the like, the cigs thing, you, you know, there's that picture of um, Len Dawson, right? There's yeah. a famous of him, like, in, with, a, like, a fresca and a cigarette in the halftime of the Super Bowl against the Packers. There's a famous picture, I think, of uh, Johan Cruyff, the famous Barcelona and, and Holland player. One of the greatest soccer players ever. Same thing. Just sitting in the change room with a cigarette at halftime. It's like, yeah. it's incredible how not that far back you need to go where that, in, was, that was the thing. People were just cigarettes all the time. Forgive the constantly. baseball thing again. But in, in J- Japanese baseball, they, I think they still have cigarette breaks during the game. <laughs> I think they really do have a For delay. players? Yeah, players and fans. Yeah, I think so. 
I've played with uh, many Japanese players through the years, and they a lot of them smoke cigarettes. It's, I mean, you can see it in movies as well. You don't have to go that back that far to get a movie where just everybody is chain-smoking, like at all times, just ripping through them. All right, well, wh- some of our friends that I'm really excited about, our friends over at Underdog Fantasy, the best place to play fantasy football this summer. It's under- Underdog Fantasy. Their Best Ball Mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money, and the best part is... You just draft your fantasy football team, and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season, and the highest scores at the end of the year win. So it makes it so easy and fun to play. The champion of Best Ball Mania last year, they drafted in June, so there's no time like the present to join Underdog and take your shot at a million-dollar draft. June's coming up, so get your draft in. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code PFF. Also, if you play... 10 of those dollars using promo code pff you get a free pff subscription these are our friends over underdog fantasy we're working together here because it is the best fantasy football game out there so what are you waiting for head to underdogfantasy.com or the app store play ten dollars with code pff and draft your best ball mania team today man that's a great deal Mm. that's a great deal that we get there well friend of the show josh josh norris we have multiple friends of the show there. But, yeah, True. Josh Norris doing some uh, some great things over there at Underdog Fantasy. I think he uh, tunes in every now and again. So uh, go support those guys and win yourself some money and get yourself a free PFF subscription, all sorts of goodies there with Underdog Fantasy. Have you seen this this Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, I so when, when we're live here, I, I glance at yeah. Twitter. So for anybody who doesn't who's not aware – Nick Saban essentially said, yeah, you know, we had the number two recruiting class and we didn't pay anybody anything, but Texas A&M over there with the number one class, they bought it. They bought their number one recruiting class, and that's just not how we roll. That's Nick Saban calling out Jimbo Fisher, his former assistant, and of course, they're both in the SEC West, they play each other every year. Now, Jimbo is doing a press conference right now and has arrived with notes, right, post-it notes with a red pen, and is currently... (laughs) <laughs> ripping into Saban, including threats such as, quote-unquote, I know things. This is great. It's, it's, it's not, as someone said, I, again, when I was glancing, it's not a press conference. It's not a prepared statement. It's a legit promo, like a legit WWE-style promo. And, man, he's just, he's just going to town. He knows things. Uh-huh. He suggested that Saban should be slapped. Maybe someone should have slapped him somewhere along the way. Uh, our God. friend uh, Joey Molinaro, though, I thought he nailed it earlier. I thought he great. You know, great he had a little. Video. He had his usual back and forth between uh, Nick Saban, Jimbo, mm-hmm. special guest Brian Kelly, SEC invaded legend. the call. Yeah, man, the SEC West is going to be uh, it's going to be legit. Okay, so final thing we're talking about today: dark horse MVP candidates. Yeah, Ooh. so NFL.com did you, one. You specialize in the uh, the obvious MVP candidate. So who's who's the favorite? Did I predict like I think going out on a limb here, Josh Allen's going to be in the MVP race next okay. year. Yeah, Josh so, Allen and Patrick Mahomes are the two favorites right now. Adam Shine, they're not great dark horses. Adam Shine, he's got his own uh, show and also does some some sporadic writing for NFL.com. He he wrote about this a little bit. He threw some players in like Derek Carr and Tua and all that stuff. My thing, I think the dark horse MVP candidates could be all of these receivers that we're talking about Tyreek let's say Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams right because if I'm truly believing that this is the biggest offseason story which is receivers moving teams if Devontae Adams goes to the Raiders and they start competing with the Chargers the Broncos 
and the Chiefs. Let me say this very delicately because we uh, we do get a lot of Raiders fans protecting Derek Carr, the most valuable player in the history of the universe per his brother David. Derek Carr is a very good quarterback. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say he's the fourth best quarterback in the AFC West? I think it's fair to say that in most years, you know, if you ran the simulation however many times. In most years, yes. In, yeah. Like going into this year, if right. you were making a prediction, he'd be the fourth best quarterback in the AFC In any West. given year, he might be better. Now, last year, I think, he he did, be. I think he played better than Patrick Mahomes for much of the year. I think he played better than uh, Russell Wilson. Played better than Patrick Mahomes against Patrick Mahomes. He did. Derek Carr. Uh, Mahomes, I think, got lucky against the Raiders a lot uh, from a production standpoint last year. Yeah. The, here's uh, the blueprint. No, we're going to go run our own yes. thing. So I would say Derek Carr, probably the fourth best quarterback in the AFC West. Have I hedged that enough without attacking him? If the Raiders have a dominant offense and they're competing at the top of that division this year, I think it, and, and it's Devontae Adams is going off, right, from a statistical standpoint. Uh, you might point to Devontae Adams as the, as the key, right, as the piece. And I don't always like doing this, but if, if at the same time the Green Bay Packers offense becomes stagnant and they don't properly replace Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers' numbers come back down to earth, there will be a legit Devontae Adams MVP candidacy, right? Same thing for a Tyreek Hill. If the Chiefs struggle and Tua has this massive breakout season, A-B analysis here, Sam, of Tyreek Hill's the thing, right? Um, assuming he has the numbers to back it up. So if Tyreek Hill or Devontae Adams, if they put up Cooper Cup-like numbers with new quarterbacks and they elevate Tua and the Dolphins and they elevate Derek Carr and the Raiders, those are my real, you know, dark horse type of you know, candidates for MVP. Okay. Non-QBs. Um the AP's MVP award has been running since 1957. Do you know what, when the last year a wide receiver won MVP was? Jerry Rice in 87? A wide receiver has never won MVP. What? A defensive tackle and a kicker have won MVP. A wide receiver has never, ever won That's why they're dark MVP. It will not happen because whenever you have a wide receiver going off, it's corresponded with a quarterback having a huge year as well. And the idea is always that the quarterback is the guy that gets the plaudits, even when it's a wide receiver driving the production. This is why this is different, though, because elite receivers are now going to new quarterbacks. It's different. Like, Cooper Cup put up ridiculous numbers last year, and he had the best case for MVP. But it was Matthew Stafford came in, right? So the analysis went the other way. It was Cooper Cup had Jared Goff before, and then people said, well, Stafford came in, and now Cooper Cup's numbers went up. They've got great rapport, and they moved on. Because Devontae Adams and Tyree Kill are going to new spots and throw AJ, you know, throw AJ Brown in there. If Jalen Hurts takes off, all of these new receivers are they're going to say, "Well, that was the difference." No, that's why Tua yeah, yeah. and Hurts and Carr, but it's not going to be went framed. crazy and got better. It's because of their receivers. Yes, but it's not going to be framed like so. AJ Brown is MVP. It's going to be AJ Brown was the key to unlock MVP Jalen Hurts. That's how this works. The quarterback gets the credit because what you need to happen is you need an incredible statistical season from the wide receiver, right? Yep. Which you'll probably get. You need the quarterback to not have a particularly good statistical season, and you need the team to win enough games that they're in the MVP discussion generally. 
so that the team needs to win with the quarterback being kind of crappy statistically, but the wide receiver going nuts. And that's just a thing that never happens. In the, like, you never get those three things coinciding, so a wide receiver is just not winning MVP. If Jerry Rice can't win MVP, it's not happening. That's not how it works. I think you'll find it is. It's not how it works. 57. Cooper Cup started. He, like, he, he poked the door open a little bit this year. Defensive tackle, Alan Page, won MVP. Kicker, compa- Mark Mosley, won MVP. You're cross-comparing. Outside linebacker, Lawrence Taylor, won MVP. A bunch of running backs and then all quarterbacks. You yeah. can't win it as a receiver. It's not happening. And it should be, it should be quarterbacks. That's fine. We're talk- that's why we're talking about dark horse. You, you wanted me to talk dark horse. You want me to just talk about like other quarterbacks? But there's dark horse and there's like not possible. These are possible because of these specific situations. Receivers changing teams can help shape the narrative differently in the, in these particular cases because they're all going to quarterbacks that never have been in the MVP, right? Derek Carr has dabbled in the MVP race a couple times in his career um, other than even his, his brother's analysis. 2016, Derek Carr was an MVP until he averaged, you know, two yards per attempt in a game against the but Chiefs. It's gonna, like, so 2007 Patriots, right? Randy Moss comes in, and Tom Brady increases his, his career-best touchdown number by the exact number of touchdowns he threw to Randy Moss, which, by the way, was an all-time record. Threw 23 touchdowns to Randy Moss. Comes in, has an amazing season. Patriots roll. Brady's winning MVP. But Brady was already one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. He was already, already established. He was already, you know, it, at the time. Oh, gosh, baseball. He was, he was just a winner. He was just a guy that won and never had great receivers and could always do it. And then Randy Moss helped unlock that. Yes. The narrative was different there. The narrative, the narrative on Tua and Jalen Hurts isn't like, oh, all these guys need is just one great receiver to put them over the top. They're already playing great. Or at least it shouldn't be. It's like they're trying to still prove that they belong. Yeah. So anyway, those, those are the two guys that I would highlight as, as dark horses. Okay. They're my dark horses. Do you have dark horse MVP candidates? I mean, you can't have a wide receiver. It's just not happening. Um, I think if you're looking for dark horses position-wise, like a non-quarterback, you so, have to start with running back because that's the only other position that wins MVP. Um, even now, as absurd as that is. I don't think that would happen. I, I think I think the voters are smart enough to happen. not to lean to they would lean receiver over over running back. Adrian Peterson last one as a running back in twenty twelve. Um ages ago. I think so Jonathan Taylor goes off for two thousand yards, the Colts end up making the postseason, Matt Ryan's okay, just steadies the ship. That's an MVP candidacy. Like people were Jonathan Taylor had an MVP candidacy last year and the Colts weren't good. Like, for a while. But they always run out. You know what I'm saying? Like, they run out because... Oh, but because usually the player runs out. But, like, if the guy sustains it and has the Adrian Peterson season where he threatens the all-time record... The reason why it doesn't work is because, like, Jonathan Taylor only got MVP candidacy because he had a game where he scored four touchdowns and it happened against the Bills, right? And everybody got all the feels because, oh, they beat the Bills and here's four touchdowns. And, oh, by the way, I think Jonathan Taylor's actually been carrying the Colts this entire season. It's like week 12... But now because he just scored four touchdowns, I got all the feels, and I'm going to project this 11 weeks prior and think that, well, Jonathan Taylor's entire season has been awesome when it was really just one game, right? And this is what happens with Derrick Henry every single year. He has two or three games where he takes over the fourth quarter and overtime, and he's ridiculous, and people think, well, he does this every week, and he doesn't. And so Jonathan Taylor didn't do it every week, 
prior. He didn't do it every week after. And the candidacy dies. And that's what happens to running backs, right? Because they have a couple games where people go crazy. With a receiver, at the end of the year, especially with the 17-game schedule here, the stats can look ridiculous. And again, because we have these receivers on the move, I think they've, they're, they're primed to maybe overtake at least running backs as far as MVP conversation goes. Yeah, I mean, realistically, it's a quarterback award. So what you're looking for is which quarterback, it is. Which quarterback that it doesn't have good odds has the chance of doing something completely unrealistic at the start of, you know, in May. That looks unrealistic in May. Honestly, the best bet is um, Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson plays this year and isn't suspended for half the season by the NFL. And, like, that could easily be an MVP candidacy. Like, the Browns should be a contender with Deshaun Watson at quarterback. He, the last time we saw him play football, he was – remember, there was five guys, I think, with a PFF grade above 90. Four of them were in the championship games, and Deshaun Watson was the fifth with a terrible Texans team around him. So – if he's playing at that level within a Stefanski offense and the Browns roster, I mean, they, he should be amongst the MVP favorites, let alone dark horse. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Deshaun Watson's a good quarterback. Um, be in a decent situation. Uh, somebody just tweeted at us uh, and actually tagged Jameis Winston. I was going to bring up Winston. As a guy. I yeah. I might go that, down that route. I think, I'm glad you finally, three years later, five years later, come around <laughs> to Jameis Winston, annual MVP candidate. I mean, look, as a dark horse, if, you know, what, what has the potential to be strange? It's Jameis at all times, always. The, we, when we talked about the New Orleans Saints, it's not a bad roster. And in particular, the offense, um, they've now added some pieces around him. Like, the offensive line is a concern. We talked about that with Austin on the show. The defense should be very good. The NFC is weak relative to the AFC. There's a way where the Saints contend, and if particularly if they're able to kind of continue that voodoo they have over Tampa Bay and, you know, keep causing them problems in the head-to-heads, the Saints could definitely be contenders. And Jameis, if he plays well, which he was kind of on his way to doing with Sean Payton, um, I could see that. The numbers were pretty good before he got hurt. He's in a dome. Saints, I mean, who else is going to compete in the NFC, right? It's a, it's a top-heavy conference where teams like the Saints and the Eagles – don't feel like they don't feel like they're as good as the Bucks or Packers or Rams at the moment. But as you know, once the season starts, they could you know they could be right. They they could be right there and competitive there. So I think I think Jameis Winston makes sense. What about Kirk Cousins? MVP Kirk. I doubt it. Huh? I doubt it. Kevin O'Connell, coach, working his magic could happen. That system. They said. Uh, I also saw the headline: Dalvin Cook be pl- could be playing some receiver. Now, playing receiver is different than lining up at receiver. Yeah. Running backs line up at receiver. Playing receiver is different. I don't think he's going to play receiver. I'm not sure it's different in the terms of, like, saying that, you know? Dalvin's going to play some receiver. That just means Dalvin's going to line up at receiver or something. Yeah, it's just it's, – it's misleading because when you say playing receiver, it's like, oh, this is – you might change rooms and, and there's going to be – like, literally every team takes their running back and puts him out at receiver at some point. So it's not – like that's yeah. not a headline. But you can't really – And I know no one today would ever write a headline on something that wasn't news. No. You can't really play a little receiver. You know what I mean? Like, it's either – you're sure either you playing – It's an alignment. Like, we have to differentiate in football, and this happens in fantasy all the time, right? There's a difference between a position and an alignment. 
Yeah. And this is why the tight end, they have this tight end debate all the time and how do they get paid and everything. Tight ends, by definition, are going to align at receiver a certain amount of time. Like, that's a part of the tight end. Like, every team does it. If every team does it, that's the expectation. It goes back to expectation. When teams run empty, right, they usually don't have five wide receivers on the field. They almost always have at least a running back and a tight end on the field most of the time. Yeah. At least one of them. Usually both. That's just the reality. That's just the numbers. Why? Running backs line up in the slot. They run up. They line up out wide. So, what is your definition of him playing a little receiver? It depends. I don't. I, I didn't click into it, but I mean, it depends on what they're trying to say. Does it just mean like we're going to move him around more than they did previously? I mean, that's a little newsworthy. But that's Tap what I'm saying. Is skills. it's kind of it's kind of difficult for a guy to just play a little receiver as opposed to we're moving him to wide receiver because yeah, I don't think they were implying that they're going to move him. But it just because, I, as you say, it's it involves a different meeting room. It involves di- like a whole different schedule than playing so if you're doing that for a player it, it's complicated right that's why guys like one of the reasons why guys like Cordero Patterson or um, Ty Montgomery like it's not quite as easy as you saying well let's just learn both positions and you can move them around at will because the schedule like a day-to-day NFL schedule is not really set up for a dude to play two different positions attend two different meetings at all times practice at two different positions at the same time like can't do both really you can dabble with it and you can kind of learn the concepts of both but realistically you are one position playing at another all it says is um per the athletics chad graf uh delvin cook might end up seeing more opportunities in the passing game lining up in bunch sets as a receiver during otas yeah right so it's just there'll be more alignments where dalvin might move around anyway going back like the kirk cousins thing right kirk has played at an extremely high level for multiple seasons now i would say that in theory this is the best system that he's going to have been a part of people keep talking about conceptually this idea that oh kyle shanahan would love kirk cousins like if shanahan could get hold of kirk cousins fireworks that's the guy he's been looking for for years trying to bring him in and this is kind of an offshoot of that right kevin o'connell comes in they haven't really done an awful lot different the theory being that kevin o'connell and the new coaching change can get different results out of these players we just talked about how he's got one of the number one receivers in the entire nfl and justin jefferson adam thielen has the best uh touchdown rate against press coverage of any receiver in the nfl adam thielen's touchdown rate generally is absolutely insane the vikings have playmakers if they get an offensive line bump either from tinkering with the personnel or again from this offensive system being a little more friendly than others um and it, again, in an NFC that isn't great, there's a world where the Vikings surprisingly contend and Kirk Cousins all of a sudden is an MVP candidate. Yeah, and for the same reason, I think, with Jameis Winston too, right? I mean, it's a wide-open NFC above those first you know, top couple teams. If the Vikings are competing with the Packers for the division in the NFC North, if the Packers do take a step back without Devontae Adams, right, with, with the offense potentially taking a step back, absolutely. All right, I could, I could buy into Cousins. As the dark horse. The other thing you mentioned, the offensive line overhaul, not exactly apples to apples, but remember when McVay came in and took the worst Rams offensive line and that offense became, the offensive line became good within a year. Now it also fell apart one year under McVay as well, but they completely flipped the offensive line from a pass pro standpoint, from a run blocking standpoint. The Vikings aren't nearly as bad as what the Rams had. And they're not coming out of as disastrous of a system of, what as what jeff fisher and that staff left a few that 2016 but we have seen you know those overhauls 
uh, you, in part because of the system. Do you think it's possible anymore for a defender to win MVP? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think any of this stuff is possible. It would take – so a year like last year where I, Aaron Rodgers became the favorite late and it was, it was Rodgers and Brady. But overall last year it did feel like the quarterback play – you just didn't have clear-cut elite quarterback play that separated itself. It would take one of those years and the defender has to have 25 sacks. It's got to be something ridiculous, right? And again, with the 17-game schedule – People don't adjust for that in their head. They're going to see, well, this guy had 25 sacks. We've never seen that before. This guy had 12 interceptions. You know, we haven't seen that since. But it's going to take one of those things where the extra game might help a little bit in what in, in the way it plays in, in people's brains. Aaron Donald and uh, T.J. Watt have the same MVP odds as Justin Fields and Desmond Ritter. <laughs> that's how unlikely it that's is. That's how unlikely it is. That a defender wins MVP today. It's just, you're right. It takes it takes a down year from all quarterbacks, and it takes a defender doing something statistically unprecedented that the hype goes out of control, probably early in the season as well. Yeah, and this might be more like defensive player of the year conversation, but would a, like a Joey Bosa having Khalil Mack on the other side and some support on the defensive line, could Joey Bosa be the guy that has 23 sacks this year, 24 sacks, right? Maybe not in the MVP discussion. That's these are unlikely things, but defensive player of the year, long shots. You look at support, how the supporting cast is going to help uh, other people, and Joey Bosa is a guy that might come to mind as a guy that could get some help over there with the Chargers. Cool man. Anything else? No, we out. I do have to remind people: PFF twenty five percent off. We, we're still giving that using the promo code NFL pod. They haven't changed that on me, right? No, no, I don't think so. 25% off using the promo NFL pod. This is a great time to get in here as well. Cause you get 365 days of access. You get edge, you get elite, all of it's 25% off. I mean, you'd even get the draft guide for next year. If you're going to buy it next year, might as well just get it right now. But all the grades and stats, the fantasy football rankings and projections are coming soon. It is almost fantasy season, Sam. And that's where uh, people like having Elite the best because of all the information that you get, the locked article content, all that fun stuff. So 25% off using the promo NFL pod. All right. So you and I are going to be back on Thursday. We've got one more show. Monday. Today's, oh, today, what is today? Thursday. It's Monday for me, you see. Mm. Today's Thursday? Yeah. It's the beginning of the week for me. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I have a two-day week. Yeah. And the weekend hits. Yeah. Today's Thursday. Yeah. All right. Yeah, vacation's messing with me. So, today's Thursday. We'll be back on Monday, and then you're off. Yeah. I have, I have locked in three guests for while you're gone. I do have Rick Spielman, so we can talk, talk a lot about the Vikings and his time there. We'll see if there's any uh, taboo subjects, but I'll try to get into The one thing you have to ask him that people brought up is you need to find out how much ownership meddles how many decisions made yeah during his time in minnesota were owner influenced and how much did those owners actually want to win versus just you know as long as we don't suck we're in as long as we don't suck and i can still contact the irs and let them let them know that this how do kpis vary from team to team how much does ownership really want to win and how much do they influence? 
How much does ownership really want to win? What do you think about the job Quasi's doing right now? No, I won't. Uh, Rick's been, you know, Rick should be fun. That should be a fun interview. He's, he's, he's doing media stuff now, so he is talking. It's not completely different. Um, completely, you know, it, it should be good, though. Um, we'll have Trevor Sikkim in here. We're going to be doing, a, you know, positive things for all 32 teams, reasons for optimism. Okay. You know, to combat your fatal flaws yeah. in Austin. We figured Trevor was the perfect person to come in. Very optimistic Bring some person. positive energy on that end. We'll have um, Greg Rosenthal has agreed to come on the show from uh, around the NFL. Mm-hmm. Friend of the show, Greg, who uh, secretly listens to us as well. Secretly. Yeah. Because every now and again, he's like, oh, you made this point, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, you listen to that's Get your own podcast to worry about. Yeah. But so, yeah, he listens as well. So we'll get Greg on here. And uh, if there are any other, re- I mean, just really good guests, just really good guests that you would want to hear, shoot us a note at those, uh, any of those places. The email is NFLpodcast at PFF.com uh, or at me, at PFF underscore Steve on Twitter. At me. At me. Remember, email us in um, ideas for the new charity, the next place that we can raise money for. We've got to set up that GoFundMe, ideally before I leave next week. So I'm going to get that rolling. All right. Well, thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you on Monday because today is Thursday. Mm.